And as you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's word to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We are beginning the proceedings that are ultimately going to lead to the crucifixion and death of our Lord. We're going to be examining the trial, if you can call it that before Pilate and Herod this morning. So again, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 23, if you'd like to follow along in your copies of God's Word. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 12 today. So again, listen carefully, because this is God's Word for you today. It says, Then the whole company of them, that is the Jewish leadership, arose and brought him, that is Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching even throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to God one more time and ask his blessing as we examine this passage of Scripture today together. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that you have given to us through your servant, Luke. I pray that we would Approach it with reverence and a readiness to obey what we learn from it. Help us to see what it is that you have done for us. So I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a cliched statement. It says that a broken clock is right twice a day. And that is what we see here with Pilate. Pilate has for once gotten a judgment correct. And that he has said that Jesus is innocent. But this is the exception that proves the rule of who Pilate actually is. If you remember, way back in our study of Luke chapter 13, Luke 13 and verse 1, we are reminded of something that Pilate had done and became the source of controversy at the time. It says in Luke 13, 1, that there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Here, Pilate is, makes a reference to the point when he had slaughtered some worshipers in the midst 
of their worship and had sprinkled their blood in with the offering of their sacrifice, committing not only a a heinous murder, but also committing sacrilege on top of that, being very offensive to the people that he was supposed to be ruling over. This is the kind of person that Pilate was. So it would make sense for a Jewish people that would like to get rid of Jesus, this is the man to bring him to. But the Jews get a surprise, and that even someone as wicked as Pilate can look at Jesus and say, I don't see any guilt in this person. And so they will take him on to Herod, and they will get the same result. And even Herod, himself not the best of rulers, even he does not take these ridiculous charges against Jesus seriously. So it seems to be that this trial doesn't do anything. And instead, we are being treated, it would appear, to 12 verses of typical government behavior, sending you from one person to another and not getting any answer. So why is it that Luke wants to bore us with these details? Why does he spend time talking about the inefficiency of government? Because there's more here than that. There's a lot more that we can learn from this passage. Luke is the only one to give us the window into the proceedings with Herod. So there is something special that we can learn from this passage in particular. And I'm hoping that we can learn two things from it. As you can see in the outline that's tucked into your bulletin, one of the first things that this passage wants to teach us is that King Jesus is declared innocent by Roman rulers. As one scholar points out, even people who are unbiased will look at Jesus and will say, this is someone who hasn't done anything wrong. This is what Luke wants to stress to us, is that Jesus is innocent and is declared so even by people who would, it's just as easy for them to kill him as it would be to let him go. And the second point is by God's design, the Romans mock so that he that is Jesus will sit on a heavenly throne. We're going to spend most of our time on this first point, and we'll look at the second towards the end. So here, uh, this first point, these first few verses, Jesus is declared innocent by Roman rulers. The Jewish leadership, as we covered last time, have said that they are wanting to get rid of Jesus and to get rid of him permanently. Jail time's not going to suffice. It has to be death. The problem is, is the Jews are currently occupied by the Romans, and the Romans don't like the Jews killing their own citizens. So they have said execution is only in the hands of the Roman Empire. Well, the Jews want to kill Jesus because Jesus is claiming to be God. The Romans don't care what Jesus claims to be. If he's claiming to be God, they don't mind. That's not a capital offense. So the Jews have to come up with some reason. The Jewish leadership needs to get the attention of the Roman state. So they're going to bring about charges that they hope will get the government's attention. Now, Pilate, he is a governor of this particular area. It's hard to know exactly what his duties were, but we're pretty sure that he was responsible for two things. One, the collection of taxes, and two, the keeping of the peace. Collection of taxes and keeping the peace. It's all he has to do. So you can see, since that's the stuff that he's in charge of, The charges that the Jewish leaders want to accuse Jesus of are tailored to this particular thing. They list out three charges that they have for him. The first, as we see in verse 2, is misleading a nation. The second is forbidding to give taxes or tribute to Caesar. 
And the third is that he is claiming to be, claiming himself to be Christ the King. Now, are any of those charges true? And the answer is, as the Jews understand them, no. We'll get to the third one, but let's take a look at the first two. Is Jesus really misleading the entire nation? The answer is no. Jesus is preaching to love one another, to submit to God, to follow the Lord's commandments. This is hardly misleading a nation. Instead, he is trying to bring the nation back to where they always should have been going. And indeed, even when Jesus is found opposing man-made rules, when the people want to question him, he responds to what he's doing so well that he defeats their own arguments. They can't really accuse Jesus of misleading, but it's the best that they've got, so they'll try that. But as we can see, those charges don't stick. What about the second one? saying that Jesus has forbidden the people to pay taxes. Well, that's just, that's just plain untrue. As we saw back in Luke chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus says exactly the opposite by telling them to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus isn't telling you you can't pay your taxes. Indeed, he's encouraging you to pay your taxes to the discouragement of many. This is what Jesus tells us to do. So they're just having to resort to lying. But now what about this third charge? Because this is the one that Pilate seems to be most interested in. They're saying that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ and that he is claiming to be a king. Is this true? The answer is, well, yes and no. In the way that they are framing the question, the answer is, in fact, no. Jesus is not trying to be a political figure. In fact, we see just that. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 6, just a few pages over. In John chapter 6, Jesus has the opportunity to aspire to political leadership. He has just been healing people all day and has been feeding people, 5,000 folks, with bread and fish. And we get to verse 15, and it's the, the people... Jesus says, perceiving then that they, all these people he's just fed, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He had the opportunity to be king. And what a political platform he had. Free food and free health care for an entire nation. This was the opportunity to be the king of a lifetime. But he actively runs away from that role. He is not interested in election to the kingship. That's not his point. Unfortunately, accidental election does indeed happen. I came across a story this week of a Norwegian, Norwegian election that took place in 2016. A man was put on the short list as a backup representative for his small town of 8,000 people. He was a part of a heavy metal group, Dark Throne, and didn't want to be part of this election. So his whole campaign was posting a picture of himself holding a cat saying, please don't vote for me, because he didn't want this rule. Unfortunately, the people ignored this command and voted for him unanimously, and he became a backup representative. And because of the way the laws were worked out, he was stuck in that role for four years. There was absolutely nothing he could do about it. So accidental elections do happen. But Jesus was more careful than Mr. Darkthrone. Indeed, he was running from political office. 
But isn't there a sense, though, in that Jesus is, in fact, a king? Oh, yes. This is why Jesus answers kind of enigmatically as he does. When Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And the you there is emphatic. So it's like Pilate is kind of disbelieving that the figure in front of him would claim to be a king. He doesn't have any followers following him. It's just this one guy here by himself. But Jesus answers him, oh, you have said so. Because he is, in fact, a king of sorts. Not just a king of sorts. He is going to be the, the king of the world. The king of the universe. He is the one who is holding everything together in this very moment. Jesus is the one who is keeping Pilate's heart beating even as he asks the question. So in one sense, yes, he is a king. Because he is king of the world. He is also indeed king of the Jews. Psalm 110 predicts that the son of David is going to be the king. David's son and David's Lord. So yes, is king of the Jews. Yes, is king of the world. But that's not yet. Indeed, he has to go through this trial first. So Pilate can see, though he does not have a political threat in front of him. There is no one who is going, this Jesus is not misleading people away from Rome. We don't have a political figure here. So he says, I find... No guilt in this man. Luke continues to emphasize this. Jesus was not crucified because he was a criminal. Jesus was not crucified because he made a political miscalculation against Rome. He was crucified because this was the plan of God. We'll explore that more in a minute. Of course, the Jewish leadership is unhappy with this announcement. So they continue to accuse him urgently and saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. If you want to overlay that map over, over Alabama, that would be from Winfield to Birmingham or Jasper to here. It's about a 70-mile area that Jesus has been teaching in. He's trying to get them in trouble by saying he's, he's really popular. But this mention of Galilee gives Pilate an idea. Someone else just so happens to be in Jerusalem at the time. Someone else who can deal with this case. Who happens to be, according to scholars would say, he is about a 10-minute walk from Pilate's office. So he sends them over there and says, this is in Herod's district. Why not have Herod figure it out? And sends him over there. Pilate is probably doing so just to get Jesus off of his desk. Not to have to deal with this anymore. But the Lord will use even government inefficiency and an unwillingness to take responsibility to give us yet another person to look at it and to look at Jesus' case and to also conclude this is not a political reason why Jesus was crucified. If Jesus is going to die, it's going to be from his own will. And that's what we get with Herod. So he sends Herod over, who is delighted to see Jesus. Now, why is Herod delighted? Is it because he says, I've heard about this man who claims to speak the truth of God, and I desperately want to know this God that Jesus preaches about. Let me hear what he has to say. That's not Herod's reason for having him here. 
He's hoping to see a sign. He's heard that Jesus works miracles. He's heard that he's healed entire villages, cast out demons, raised the dead, and would like to see a show. And is hoping that Jesus will do something to entertain him here. And when he questions him over and over, he finds Jesus doesn't respond, which is interesting. because That's the only time Jesus doesn't. Scholars have speculated as to why. Some say, well, Pilate's already rendered the verdict. The trial is over. Why is Jesus having to answer any more questions? All this is just unjust anyway. But others have said perhaps the reason why Jesus doesn't answer is because Jesus knows Herod isn't serious. And we can expect nothing different. We'll see folks that will say, it's like, well, I'll believe in God if he opens up the sky and shows himself to be here. It's like, I don't think that, like the reason why the Lord doesn't do that is because that's not what, that's not what you're really looking for. He's giving you everything you need here in his word. And if we ignore that, we have no reason to expect anything further from God. He's given us all that we need. But yet it seems Herod has at least had some interest in the past to listen to John the Baptist. If we see in another gospel over in Mark, it says that when he had imprisoned John the Baptist, he would go and hear him a lot, hear him preach, because he was at least interested in hearing what this gospel thing was. But it seems as though he didn't ever actually believe. One pastor, Philip Ryken, put it this way. says, Herod wanted to believe, but never actually did. In fact, this may have been what made him so dangerous. He had dabbled in religion without ever committing his life to Christ, which made him even more resistant to the gospel in the end. I think Riken's on to something here. I think he's on to something with both of these men's approach to Jesus, because I think they're reflected in in our own culture. You have people who are like Pilate, who... Hear what Jesus is claiming, will ask him one or two questions and conclude, oh, there's nothing wrong with Jesus, but there's no reason to submit to him. There's no reason to take his claims seriously. And we'll say, well, we'll think about this later. We'll push him off to the side. A lot of people take that approach to Jesus. We always assume there will be more time. We always assume that there will be another chance to get right with God, preferably later in our life when we don't have to sacrifice as much. But that is a presumption. We don't know when we'll get to hear from Jesus again, or if we will get to hear from Jesus again. Or there are some who are like Herod. They've heard about this gospel many times. They've heard a preacher talk about Jesus on a number of occasions. They've Attended even voluntarily, sought out to hear more about this person. Because they're hoping Jesus can do something for him. Fix their bank account, fix their marriage, make their life happy and joyful. And when Jesus doesn't live up to those expectations, because that's not what Jesus was offering in the first place, they become disappointed, disillusioned. Or or like Herod, will turn on him, treat him with contempt, mock him and send him away. This is what Herod, in fact, does here in verse 11. As a means of mocking him, they put on splendid clothing, which was another way of talking about a leftover royal robe, beautiful piece of cloth to wrap around him to make fun of his claim to be king. They'll say, all right, Mr. King, here, I've got a spare robe in my closet. Let me put this around you so you at least have something to wear. 
and making fun of Jesus and sending him on his way. And our culture does that as well. We'll look at Jesus, assume he's not what he has cracked up to be, and make fun of him, either through direct mocking or just through our own lives. We'll give Jesus a hand-me-down robe, the last part of our lives, something we wouldn't mind parting with, give that to Jesus and send him on his way, assuming that because we have attended church a few times or we've prayed a few times over the meal or went forward and said a prayer once at a church service that it's all fine and good. We've given Jesus his crown and we've sent him on his way. Instead of saying, no, you are the king. Come, have my throne. Sit and rule over my life. Direct my daily decisions and change my agenda from my will to yours. That's the approach that Herod should have taken. But instead... He gives him something and sends him on his way. And sends him back to Pilate. In verse 12, it says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with one another. It's an odd thing for Luke to record. Luke's the only one to record that fact. We don't exactly know what it was that the conflict was in the past or how this meeting between Jesus and them had healed this relationship. But if nothing else, I think this just goes to show how Jesus always affects those that he comes in contact with. He restores them to a relationship to each other. But because they don't take his claim seriously, they miss out on the real relationship. They don't, are not, as one commentator pointed out, they're not reconciled to God. And they truly miss what it is that Jesus is supposed to do, how it's supposed to be for them. At any point, Jesus has been declared innocent now of false charges twice. He's been sent back to Pilate, and you would think that this would be the end of this controversy for Jesus. Having now been declared innocent by two different Roman authorities, we would conclude that the Jewish leaders have done all they can. They've talked to two different government entities, and both of them have rejected. And we would think, okay, well, that's it. But as we're going to see in the coming weeks, Jesus is still going to be executed. He's going to use these same figures to make it happen. But it's not going to be because Jesus did something wrong. But it's because this is the plan for what Jesus wants to do. But why? That's what we're going to look at here in our second point. Very quickly. By God's design, the Romans mock so that he will sit on a heavenly throne. For this, I want you to turn, if you will, with me to the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation. And turn to Revelation 5. It's a beautiful passage. It gives a look at the throne room of God. Revelation chapter 5. This is where the story is going. Both our current one and, well, the story of of all of our lives. All of history is leading to here. Revelation 5. 
says, this is the Apostle John who's writing, who's seeing a vision. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that is God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What this scroll is referring to is the will of God, the plan of redemption. It's sealed up. But let's see what happens. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, that is John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering the myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is Jesus' future. Quite a contrast to what he's experienced here on the earth, isn't it? But this is the reason why Jesus is sitting before these authorities, hearing false charges put towards him and being declared innocent of them, and is going to be killed anyway. Here in verse 1, it mentions this scroll, as we've talked about already, this is the will of God. From the beginning, it was supposed to be that God and humanity were going to live together. Not because God needed humanity's help, not because God needed humanity's praise or humanity's company. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need us to do anything. But the reason why he wants to have us here is because he is gracious. He's going to share his glory, his beauty with us. But then humanity sinned. They disobeyed what God had said. And we repeat that mistake every day in our rebellion against what God is. And see, God is perfectly good. And if God is good and perfectly loving... That means he has to be perfectly just. And he can't have a relationship with anyone who sins. Well, that would eliminate all of us, wouldn't it? All of us who are honest will know that we've broken God's commandments at some level, in some way, shape, or form every single day. 
And God can't be with sinners. It's against who he is. He doesn't sin. He's perfectly holy and we are perfectly not. Can't be in his presence. So something has to be done. Sinners have to be punished. That's what we see in our own justice system. When people do something wrong and they get away with it, we are angry about it. And we're sinful people too who have gotten away with stuff. God's infinitely more holy and just than we are. And is infinitely more upset and angry when sin is not punished. So he is going to take care of that. And as we see in other sections of Scripture, that those that don't put their trust in Christ, they have to endure their punishment for all of eternity. You commit your crimes against an eternal authority, then the eternal punishment is what has to happen. So how are we to do this? God's will is still that humanity would live with him. So this means that the penalty has to be paid. Someone has to satisfy the demands of justice, and that's what Jesus does. Jesus has to die. Not because of something wrong that he's done, but to pay the penalty for all the wrong that we've done. That's exactly what we see here in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open it up, to continue God's plan of redemption because, or for, you were slain, shed your blood, and ransomed to people. That's what Jesus does for us and what Jesus can do for you. If you're here this morning and you have never committed your life to Christ, perhaps you've been like Pilate and would rather Jesus just be dismissed because every time he's around, it's hard. There's more things you have to deal with and it'd be easier if he just wasn't around. So you just choose not to think about him. Or maybe you've been more like Herod. You've been happy to hear of Jesus, but when he doesn't do what you want him to do, you send him away. If that's how you have been, then let me invite you today to set aside your throne. You're not really ruling much of anything anyway. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one who has loved you so much he's gone to the cross to take all of your penalty for you. You can access this forgiveness by trusting in him. What does that mean? Well, it means that we stop relying on ourselves to get into heaven. Many people here in this part of the country would say, well, the way that we get to heaven is by being good and having the good deeds outweigh the bad. That's not possible. We're really honest with ourselves. There's no way we could do that. And even if we could, one bad crime, one good thing does not erase a crime. Crime still has to be paid for. That's what Jesus has done here. Taken the penalty for us so that we can go free. To put our trust into him. To turn from our sin. And we'll be able to join him in that throne room and praising him forever. So what's the takeaway here from this passage? What can we learn from what we've just read? Don't be like Pilate and Herod. Don't dismiss this king because he is. Revelation 5 is really going to happen. This isn't just the ancient musings of some person 2,000 years ago. This is the future of what's to come. So all the things that we fear, if you're in Christ today and you're afraid of what's happening in this world, don't worry. This is where it's going. Revelation chapter 5. All things will be set right. God's plan will still continue. 
And if you're not in Christ, this could be your future too. This can be your king. The one who has voluntarily had himself murdered so that you could go free. He went to the cross for you. All of your sin can be wiped away. He's paid for all of it so that one day before God, Jesus himself can say of you, I find no guilt in this one. Your sin can be purged and you can be just as innocent as Jesus, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. And it can be honestly saying that you are innocent, that you are free and can be with God forever in heaven. I hope that's true of each one of you. And if it's not, nothing would thrill me more than to walk you through this. Even if you're just unsure of where you stand with Jesus. Again, nothing would thrill me more than to help you see that this can be for you. I pray that would be for you today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that you have gone to the cross for us. That you have paid for our sins, all of them. And that they can be taken away and wiped from our charge. So I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you. And who has not put their trust in you and turned from their sin. I pray that they would do that even today. That they would not wait till tomorrow. That they would not dismiss you now. But that they would submit to you as the loving and righteous king that you are. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.